You're listening to Spiderweb Salon's podcast, where we talk to poets and authors about writing, being a writer, and having ideas. Thank you for listening. Today we have A. Kendra Green in the studio. She is the writer-in-residence at the Dallas Museum of Arts Center for Creative Connections, where she collects oral history from the staff and reinterprets visitor response text into found poetry, performance, and artist books. She started her museum career in Chicago, applying text to the wall one vinyl letter at a time. She first visited Iceland under the auspice of a Stanley Award for International Research and keeps returning as she writes a book about its startling bloom of museums in the last 20 years, the peculiar ease with which private collections become public places, and how exactly to make a museum of things you cannot see. She holds an MFA in nonfiction and a graduate certificate in book arts from the University of Iowa. Today, Kendra is reading an excerpt from her essay entitled On Necropants. If you are poor, you have options. You might begin to collect strands of hair from a virgin. You might weave those strands of hair into a tiny net and drag it through the sea. And when you pull from the sea a sea mouse twitching in your net, you will make a deal. The sea mouse released into servitude. The sea mouse thrown back into the sea, but returning to you every so often, dripping with lost coins in its clutch. Or you might dig up a body, rob a grave for a rib, and bind that rib with twine and say the right things and make yourself a rib baby. The rib baby, you should know, is voracious. At first, it will be satisfied with a few drops of blood pricked from your finger, but it will grow. You will score your flesh to make a nipple of your thigh, and it will suckle there, which is fine, which is fair, because the rib baby has been stealing cream for you. Every night, the best cream, nicking it from the neighbors while they sleep. And for a while, this cream will nourish your children the color will return to their cheeks. But eventually, the rib baby will grow too big, will want too much, and you will find you can't support it. What can you do then but thank it for the cream that has been feeding your family? Look at it, breathless from the raids, and shoot it dead with a silver button. Perhaps you have no button. Perhaps you have no gun. Perhaps instead you give Rib Baby an impossible task. Send it to skim the cream from every farm in the country. You know when you say it, you hope when you say it, that it will exhaust itself and die in a field before it ever makes it home. Maybe when you went to the grave, you saved another rib for later. Yes, it is wretched to be poor, to sleep on sheets washed once a year in a turf house with one hole to vent the smoke from the hearth and the room crowded with sheep penned in for the winter. But perhaps you have a friend. Not a friend, but a man. A man who agrees of his own free will that upon his natural death you may flay him from the waist down. Tan the skin and sprinkle the solution and say the words. If you've done it right, you will step into his skin, your foot 
in his foot, your calf flexing his. I cannot tell you for sure about the fit. Sometimes I imagine the necropants as a second skin, a skin-tight skin you could forget was not your own. Sometimes I am convinced they would require a belt, or suspenders, a rigging of some kind to keep them up. And no one dwells on whether you wear them under your regular pants or in lieu of them, because the point of this is the wealth. Poor as you are, you will find yourself in want. And reaching down, dipping your hand into the scrotum like a change purse, you'll retrieve a few coins. Do not be greedy. This part is key. Don't go rooting and scratching and digging around for all you can get. Trust in the necropants. There will be more lucre. Take just what you need. But whatever you do, don't die in the necropants. That would be bad, like burning in hell bad, and you don't want that. What you want is someone who wants an endless groin bank, but without the effort of flaying anybody. You want an heir. You want someone who will step into the left leg when you step out of the left leg, step into the right leg when you step out of the right leg. That's the thing about the necropants. You cannot take them off without someone else taking them on. Not to dry clean or air out or mend the rip in the knee. There must always be a wearer. Someone is always responsible. But once you've made the transfer, once you've settled someone else into their skin, it is done and the necropants are no longer your concern. Hey, Kendra. Well, hello, Courtney. I'm so happy that you can be here with us today. I am just delighted. Thank you for inviting me. This piece, I was so happy that you sent this piece to me and said that you wanted to be doing this. So um, I'm really interested in the background of this. I know a little bit about your adventures in Iceland, and uh, I would just like to hear about where where the idea for this particular story came from, what, what inspired the necropants and made it a thing that you needed to bring to a story. Uh, well, I noticed that with uh, a certain number of the things I write, uh, if I've been telling the story enough, right, in, in conversation, if it's a thing that keeps coming up, uh, it's probably something that I need to write about. And uh, the Witchcraft and Sorcery Museum fascinates me for any number of reasons. Uh, it's a sort of place where I, I wouldn't have gone had it not been recommended to me by an uh, Israeli couple in uh, a restaurant called The Cowshed. Uh, but because it had a recommendation going for it, uh, it, it's just, it's, there are certain topics that I don't trust are going to be treated with any sort of depth, right? That they're sort of inherently interesting and people, I don't know, it's like they stop trying after that, right? Um, and so the, uh, it's, it's hard to get to, right? You really have to want to go there mm-hmm. uh, to get to Homovic. Uh, it's a, a town of 400. And I feel like when I describe the places I go in Iceland, I use the word remote, a lot. It's all remote. <laughs> and, and like in 20 different ways, right? There's the like the far east where there's just 3% of Icelanders, right? Nobody lives there, so it's remote. And then there's the, well, it's, it's just off the road in a way that no one ever gets to remote. And then there's the, it's at the edge of some fjord where it just feels like you're at the, the edge of the earth <laughs> remote. Uh, so the, uh, the, the Witchcraft and Sorcery Museum, uh, I love because it is... It delivers on what it claims to be, uh, but it has 
so much more going for it, right? If somebody asked you if you were interested in going to a museum of poverty, of right, like just <laughs> crushing centuries-long poverty, uh, I think it would be a hard sell. Uh, but once you're there and that's what you get, uh, it makes the whole thing just right, like meaty and rich. And how did you meet the the necropants in this place or the idea of this? Uh, so the uh, this museum is part of a, a group of museums in Iceland that I think of as the museums of nothing to actually see. Uh-huh. Right. So like the, the Sea Monster Museum is essentially an oral history museum. There There is nothing that they can show you, which liberates them in this really fantastic way that they don't have to preserve anything, mm-hmm. right? Everything has to be created. Uh, so they've actually made a pair of necropants, right? Facsimile necropants that uh, th- the texture always reminds me of when I was a kid and we go to the joke shop and you could get that, that like fake vomit. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so it, it's like that, but then rolled around in dryer lint to approximate leg hair. And the, the, there's pretty much just one room to the museum and and you circle around these sort of 17 small, I would say dioramas if there was more going on, but they're just sort of objects presented to you. And uh, about a quarter of the way around, you meet the necropants, and they're uh, raised up a little bit, so you're, you're pretty much at groin level with them when you look at them. And uh, they're, they're sort of lit from within, right, the way that the light works. That's amazing. It's, it's <laughs> stunning. And you, um, the oral history is something um, you that comes into your research. Um, you go there and you talk to people. I don't, I don't know a whole lot about it, but um, uh, how does that, how does that tie into your work, your research? Um, is this what you're going for when you're doing that research, or is there something else that you're working on? So the uh, I've made two trips to this particular museum. The first was the on my original trip to Iceland, where I was focusing on the museum, the Phallological Museum and uh, was gen- then trying to put in context how it was that there were all these places in Iceland where private collections built up for 30, 40 years and in the most like organic ways, just sort of tipped, right? Ever so gently, just couldn't help but become museums. And uh, so this last summer, I was going back for two months to research and uh, was thinking more about these places, the sort of, the, the next stage after the private collections that become museums, you have this group of museums that are not done by individual collectors. They're little groups of uh, people in a town that feel the need to do something, right? They're thinking about the place in a particular way. And uh, they seem to then be attracted to these subjects that don't have a material history, but that they want to exhibit in some way nonetheless. Uh, So I spent a little less than a week hanging out with the chief sorcerer, and <laughs> right, and, I know. And some days you you talk to visitors that drop by. Uh, some day, uh, somebody walks in and says, "Do you want to see a whale?" And you you just jump in a car and go out because whales have been spotted. And uh, right, <laughs> if, if you ask if someone asks if you want to see a whale, uh, you don't have any follow up questions. You, you just go with it. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so what when you're when you're talking to people, what are you what are you looking for? Like what kind of questions are you asking them when you're joining these communities of people that kind of have this uh, very distinct obsession? <laughs> well, and I, I should I should point out that I also I I try to make a point of reading what, whatever is available, mm-hmm. right? So uh, these places often have uh, little libraries that are sort of a, a shelf of of scrapbooks of um, newspaper clippings uh, the. Museum of Sorcery and Witchcraft actually makes a point when they came together as a nonprofit uh, to be heavily research-based. So they put out a, a couple of 
books reproducing books of magic. Uh, they really want people to understand the history of witchcraft and sorcery on the island. They're very proud of the fact that of the 21 people burned in Iceland's history, only one of them was a woman. So, you know, not this misogynist yeah. witch burning you worry so much about. And uh, right then it's sort of a, a matter of hanging out until something happens and hanging out beyond the point when it feels like something should have happened, right? Of... Uh, uh, waiting of, of being patient about stuff and then just getting lucky that people will bring you into their kitchen tables and talk to you about the things they think are important. Yeah. And, and, and doing this research, um, how, how much time is spent gathering material and, and then like, the, how does that ease into like the physical process of writing, um, your work? Yeah, I, I do all of my note taking, uh, by hand, right? So I fill up a journal or two, uh, each trip, and I, I find that's actually especially interesting when you're working with a population that may or may not have uh, confidence in their use of English. Uh, most Icelanders are are amazing, right? Could tell you more about uh, your pop culture than you might know yourself. <laughs> um, uh, but every once in a while, you find someone uh, in maybe an older generation, and having a translator or right somebody to make sure that uh, everything's getting across slows everything down, which makes it a really handy thing for uh, writing by hand, right? I, I'm not quite so nervous that I'm going to lose something. Mm -hmm. And the, the phrasing, right, the exact way that people say things uh, are, are, is so, right, so rich and so delightful. And so a lot of that comes through your work as you're... Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and then I also have the advantage of going to places that uh, inherently produce some sort of text, right? Mu that's what museums do. They never yes. have enough space, uh, but they, right, they do something. And so, uh, like in the, the longer version of the Necropants essay, uh, it incorporates a lot of the language since what we know of the witchcraft and sorcery is from the books of magic, right? That is the, the part that you can hold on to. And, right, the, the stave to see a ghost, uh, right, just the, the language of that, even in translation, is, uh, is really powerful to me. So, and for the full piece, was there... Um was there a particular jumping off point or was it written in pieces that eventually came together? Like, was there, was there a line that you were just like, this is it, like I have to write this and this is where it starts? Yeah, when I was thinking about uh, how, how to tell this story, right, how to, and, and how to start, because normally when I tell the story, right, I'm at a, a dinner party or something, mm -hmm. and it's very, very natural, or someone says, oh, the necropants, right? She doesn't know about the necropants. This is appropriate dinner conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, right, and so you right, you don't have to worry about the lead-in, uh -huh. uh, and and this was the thing where I was mulling it over and I'm thinking about the the heart of the museum, which is is not sorcery per se, it's uh, it's this desperation t for things to not be so bad, and as I thought about it, this is one of those essays where uh, I found the first line, and then everything sort of sort of moved from there that uh, it established that it was going to have a strong second person element uh, that this this address was going to uh, be recurring and that uh, that that gave me a chance to keep shifting the you to sort of implicate the reader mm -hmm. uh, but also force them into to different uh, perspectives of how you could be connected uh, with the, the things that happened in this community so long ago and this particular piece is not currently published, um, but you have performed it a number of times, correct? Uh, that's right. And how, how do people, do, 
the reactions that people have to this piece? Is it what you expected? Um, is it the same as sitting around a dinner table telling the story? Definitely not. I think uh, one thing that happens that I thought was really interesting when it first started coming up was uh, people knew it was nonfiction mm -hmm. um, and somehow were t totally unprepared for the uh, the scenes that they were encountering, mm -hmm. right? That it, it uh, they were having a hard time squaring uh, magical things happening in uh, a piece that was nonfiction. Mm -hmm. oh. <laughs> um, so, so people, I don't know that they they are approaching it in a in a more like literary sense. Do you think? I I think so. I think, and it's jarring in that way. Once <laughs> you know that it's on the page, that uh, people bring to it these ideas of oh, so like you're introducing, uh, right magical realism and I don't think so right I think it's it it's just realism or, or yes. something right that it, it's talking about the the belief and the the fact of the belief not uh the things that happened per se mm -hmm. as um these these themes of um you know everything you've been experiencing Iceland do those also go into your you have two chapbooks mm-hmm um, how, how do you approach these themes in those? Like, how is it different than this story? Um, where, where, where do you come up with, you know, I need to write a whole book about a certain subject? Yeah, well, the, uh, when I was working on the first essay that became the, the first chapbook, uh, I, I had no idea it was anything more than that. But as I was trying to put this, this one, uh, it, it's all, it makes a lot of lists for the quirkiest, wackiest, weirdest, strangest museums in the world. <laughs> Um, but I went with this this approach that uh, it was incredibly traditional. It had the the single collector. It had the amateur naturalist. That uh, if this were were Victorian times, we wouldn't think anything of it, uh, right? But because we have bigger, fancier, um, professional museums, right? We, we have a different take on it. And as I started looking around, I realized that ninety percent of the museums I went to, and I think I'm working out a spreadsheet to actually figure out if it's <laughs> higher than that. Uh, of these museums have been established in the last 20 years, probably the last 15, right? So there's this bloom of things that happen sort of all of a sudden. And so I started uh, looking at more museums to try to figure out what was happening. And when I, when I think about the, the landscape of museums in Iceland, uh, it makes a lot of sense for it to, to be a book. I think of each essay as sort of like a, a pillar, right? Each one stands by itself. Uh, but if things are going right, they should support something larger when you have them together. And uh, so, so it's interesting to have them try to do both things at once. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the, the second chapter is about a stone collector. And uh, I think a lot of it as being a companion to the, the first chapbook that uh, you have these like strong masculine and strong feminine. The, they come from different parts of the country. And there's uh, just a, a balance to them and at the same time, right, I still want them to stand apart if you mm -hmm. never actually get to the other one. Absolutely. Um, and working with, working with these communities, do you, do you often, when you're going to like write these pieces, do you go back to them and do you have follow-up questions or is it a continuation of research? Are there other people, other writers that you work with um, at any point or artists? Yeah, well, <laughs> one of the really lucky things that happened to me in Iceland, um, so the, the Phallological Museum, which I first went to look at, it w was only open in the summer. And uh, because of that, because it was open seven days a week uh, for a, a man that had started it in his retirement and was getting ready to retire from museums as well, 
his kids would come, right, grown-up people, and they would look after the museum for a week or so at a time and give him some relief. And uh, I met one of his daughters, who is a novelist, who has become one of my, my guides to Iceland and thinking mm-hmm. about what happens there. Um, so that's, that's been very useful to get the, uh, a literary sensibility connected to it from, from the get-go and to really be connected to the stories Absolutely. in Iceland. Uh, and then as the, as the chapbooks come together, uh, I've got a writer friend whose uh, drawings and her, her illustrated essays I've always really admired. And uh, I was asking if her if she thought she might might have something to say, right? If there, there was if she would do some drawings, mm-hmm. and uh, and she was very game. Uh, but then asked if I could, you know, help her with the the imagery. So I sent her the the pictures I'd been taking, and and not just of the museum, but to, to give a context of of Iceland more broadly and how I was thinking about it and experiencing it. And uh, it's exciting because now that now that I know that Annie's available. Uh, I can think about how the images might work in, and I take photographs when I when I visit, specifically so that she will have some some things to work from. Absolutely, that's awesome collaboration. I um, I we don't have too much time, but I would like to know if there's anything that you are currently working on. Do you have um, future plans to be going back and working on things, or are there new projects? Um, the there are more essays to write. I think they're about eight essays total and four oh, of them are awesome. done and uh so I'm, I'm i thought i was going to be writing about a particular bird museum and its relationship to a motorcycle museum <laughs> and I, I think that's still I love on, it. <laughs> on the table right museums in memoriam yes um but the thing that i keep returning to uh is a museum in uh, a town called skoar that has 21 people and the biggest museum outside of reykjavik uh it's got 14,000 objects and the the original uh, collector, curator, founder, lives next door. He's 95. He's still writing books. And in some ways, it's the, um, it is the least radical museum that I think about. It's the most traditional, mm-hmm. right? It's uh, um, all about the old things, or as, as people sometimes describe it, the, the same thing from 50 different farms. Uh-huh. Uh, but it exists at this, this particular moment. Iceland modernizes, right? Like Iceland gets money, Pretty much all of a sudden, it's one of the poorest countries in Europe uh, for most of its history. And then right around World War II, uh, it starts coming up in the world and people can get rid of everything. So there wasn't a lot of material culture to begin with, but suddenly everything is up for grabs, right? No one mm-hmm. needs it anymore in the course of two, three decades. It's, if, if you think it has value, you can get as much as you want. Wow. Okay. <laughs> right? And and so you end up with this museum that also then becomes uh, like a genealog- genealogical museum. Mm-hmm. Uh, because first there's the, people are getting rid of it. If you ask, you can have it. And after a while, people know that you take these things, so they will seek you out yeah. and give you the things that they can't throw away. So then these museums happen. <laughs> and they're huge. And uh, this particular curator, Thordur Thomason, is known for the fact that you can come in and he will look at your face and tell you who your people are. Okay, he'll right. direct you to where you need to go. Exactly, or you give him your name and he, he can show you what your grandmother donated. Wow, that's incredible. Um, where can we, is there, is there a place in the world we can like follow your adventures and keep up with things that are going on? Or is, um, like, do you have a blog or website or anything like that? Uh, yeah, you can find me at Green Inc. Uh, greeningpress.com. With green, green with an, with an e. e. Yeah, mm-hmm. cool, excellent. And um, 
thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, oh, it's it been a total a pleasure. I wish we could talk forever, but uh, we'll, we'll have next time. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Spiderweb Salon's podcast. I'm Courtney Marie, and this has been a Pariah production.